As you who have been here in the past know, I'm a fellow who likes to watch a picture show from time to time when the stars align and this privilege has afforded me. I take it. Hopefully on my day off on Monday afternoons I go and sometimes like a president, I have a screening all to myself because for some reason people don't go to movies at one o'clock in the afternoon on Mondays unless they're a loser. But it doesn't stop me. And I had a dream the other night about a movie, and I couldn't remember which one it was, but it was the story of this man who lived sort of a hermit life, and he didn't know, he hadn't calculated or anticipated the possibility that he would someday meet someone that might help knock some of the chill off the cold of his loneliness. And so he, he meets this woman, this, this remarkable woman that makes him, you know, he looks at her, he falls for her very passionately, you know, so like a Michael Scott type of you complete me type. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, I'm, you're blessed. And he falls head over heels in, in love with this woman. They have quickly and early on some trauma. They're, they're kicked out of their place. They have some trust issues, but they are afforded the privilege of having children. They have a couple of children. They're the apple of their eye. They dote on these boys, and they're, they're exceptional young men. They each sort of choose their path, and one day it comes home to them that the, their oldest son has, in a fit of rage, has mauled and killed their younger one. The woman is stricken with grief, is beside herself. And I woke up with the sorrow of this, and then I realized, this is not a movie, this is the freaking Bible. (laughs) This is a rated R story, a documentary of dysfunction that happens in the very first family at the apex of God's creation and the beginning of human history. Okay, so it was a joke, right? I didn't really have the dream, you understand. I'm trying to help you see, though, that from the very beginning, you have this situation. We've been talking about it over the last few weeks in various types of topics where God breathes into existence this magnificent planet that He has envisioned, that He's supported, that He's thought up, and He puts these people here together, and He says, image me. Make this a place of flourishing. See what you come up with. And very quickly, early on, even in this relationship that he's given them to enjoy, they are convinced that perhaps God's withholding something from them. So they ally against him. And the rest of history has been, in some ways, a horror story where the cataclysmic effects of their treason against God has been felt in every sort of family. And here, the first family, the first children that are born, there's a murder. You think about that? We don't know, but we can imagine the trauma of that for Adam and Eve. 
And you can see, though, that very early on also, that Eve, who was convinced that God was holding back from her, when the serpent said, did God really say you couldn't have? God's nervous. He just doesn't want you to have all the good stuff he has. He's got so much good stuff behind his back and he's keeping it from you. You better get it, girl, for yourself. And she grabs it and brings her husband along and he fails his job and takes it also. And then their children have the same affliction. We're told that Cain and Abel, they go to, one's a shepherd, one's a farmer, they go to make offerings to God. And as they make these offerings to God, we're told that that Abel gave some of the first fruits of his crop. The best stuff. He didn't hold anything back, and God thought, ah, I like that, that's my boy. He's giving me the best of his stuff because he's given himself to me. Cain, we're told, was participating in what could be called tokenism. He, he, he gave God a tip. He, you know you're supposed to give God something, but it just says he gave some of the fruits of the soil. Not necessarily his best stuff. He just gave some stuff. You know, he scrounged around. He found a 20. He threw it in there. And God didn't accept his offering. He didn't like it. You're, not, you're holding back from me, Cain. See, and Cain's holding back from him because his mom and dad had done the same thing. That's what we do. It's part of our God allergy. I don't know if this God can be trusted. I don't know if I can entrust myself to him. I've got to look out for myself after all. And so God, you heard the story, doesn't accept his offering, and he is exposed. And whereas his first parents, his parents and our first parents, hid after they had done what they shouldn't have, Cain did the, not flight, but the fight reaction. He got shown up. He, as Frederick Buechner says, we condemn in others the wrong we don't want to face in ourselves. And his brother, by showing a sterling and lovely, to God anyways, act of righteousness, accidentally condemned Cain. Cain saw Abel's rightness, and it magnified all the gunk inside of him. And you know that feeling. You get a little bit exposed. Someone catches you in a lie. Someone catches you doing something you shouldn't have done. And either you hide or you fight. And Abel got in the way of Cain's anger and lived no more. But you see, it's not my primary intention to talk about all the dynamics going on there, but primarily to show you that God, at the beginning, created families to be this sort of incubator, this nursery where people become well acquainted with their calling in the world, which is to demonstrate the loveliness, the warmth, the wonder, the creativity, the fascinating and solid character of God to the world. This is supposed to be the place where you learn that, where you learn how to adore your Creator, where you learn how to increase in love for other people. 
where you learn how joyful it is to follow this God. And that's the intention. And very early on you see that their family is a lot like yours. Maybe there's been no murder in it. I hope there hasn't been. But families can be this enormous place of respite and nurture and growth. But they can also be this horrendous place that you need to get away from. A place where you learn to be bitter. A place where you learn to be unvalued. C.S. Lewis in one letter to an American lady says to her, you have no idea how many occasions of domestic nastiness come across my desk. It seems to me that the only normal families are the ones that we don't know anything about. Do you think that might be true? Do you have moments in your own household or in the house that you grew up in where you think, what's wrong with us? Like, why can't we just be civil to each other? Why is simple kindness so hard for us? Why is it so freaking hard for people to share? Why do we get so mad about so many dumb things? Nobody has felt any of that. Well, one of the things that Jesus does, because the family is this major wondrous creation of God that's meant to affect the world. This is the, this is the way that God set it up. And it got blown to bits by people who have an innate suspiciousness of God and a predilection for doing exactly what they want and they don't care what anybody else wants. And we all have this sort of bent towards thinking that we're the center of things. And so Jesus comes into the world, we're told in Galatians, and lives this life in our place and transforms the whole idea of family. And in the process of doing that helps us to see what our main point is today, that your family of origin is really, it's formative for your life. There's no doubt about that. Your family of origin is formative, but it's your family of destination that's transformative. Your family of origin, every counselor everywhere at who's worth their salt would recognize the family you came from, that you lived in, that's where you learned how to be a human. That's where you, how you learn to think about money, how you learn to think about conflict, how you learn to think about relationships, how you learn to like a good team or a bad team. That's a biased statement. All the stuff about your life, so much of it is formed, whether negatively or positively, from the family that you came from. But what the Apostle is helping us get some insight into is that the presence of Jesus and the access into a new kind of family life and a removal of a cosmic sort of orphanhood from us puts us in a position where the families we came from don't determine everything about us, whether they were really good or they were exceptionally bad. There's hope for everyone. Because God's in the business of making a gigantic family that heals and changes the world. He has no grandkids. Just kids. And he makes them through his son, we're told. But see, as parents, we 
realize whether you have parented or you're going to or you're presently in the process of being parented, it could be said of us that we're like what Martin Luther said a Christian is, that we're like drunk people getting on a horse. We're always falling off on one side or the other. And parenting is a very impossible sort of task. We don't ever know what we're doing. It's very confusing. It's very disorienting. There's lots of choices. You don't know. These little kids are so demanding. The world's a complicated place. We're selfish people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I read an article recently in the Atlantic from a lady who is a clinical psychologist, and she titled this article, How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. And I'm going to give you some tips on that. If you have an aspiration for your children to one day sit on a couch and talk to a therapist the way you talk to yours about what your parents did to you. And what was strangely and perversely comforting about this article was that she said in the time of her training that there was a prevailing thought and mood which said what we're doing as counselors in the clinic when we're doing therapy, when we're listening to people, when we're unpacking their emotional life and trying to help them attain emotional health is in very many ways we're trying to undo the damage that was done by distant parents, parents who didn't invest the way they should have, who didn't give love the way they should have. And so in very many ways what the, the therapist does is they, they empathize, they validate. That's why the trite and cliched sort of, mm-hmm, hmm, how does that make you feel? Because you're not being judgmental, you're being accepting. You're compensating for a deficit in their self-formation. And she said, well, this is all great, and this is what we were taught, this is how we were taught to do it. My problem was, is when I actually got into practice, after I'd finished my PhD and done all my clinical work, I started in practice and I started seeing patients, and my first patient was a 25 or 30-year-old woman who had been well-parented. Her parents came to all her recitals and concerts and softball games. They helped her with her homework. They validated her and told her that she was important. She had a great job and lots of friends and plenty of money. And she just was in a funk. She had a malaise. Now, I hope that's somewhat familiar to some of you who are presently in a funk or a malaise. And I'm not making light of it. It's a real thing. But you know what she said? Is that here's a generation of people who've been parented in exactly the opposite way that they were parented. And they just got a new set of problems. Too much has been done for them. They don't suffer. They don't have troubles. They don't get to build character. They're taught just to achieve. They're not let to fail. Remember Hutch mentioning last week, there are deans at colleges now who... His job on orientation weekends is simple. Tell parents, you must leave. Please leave. Your children are in college, leave. Get out of here. Don't call us anymore. We don't need your input anymore. Well, is there no hope then? You can, you can be absent and distant. You can be over-involved. And in either case, you might land your kid in therapy. Well, what's comforting to me, though, is that Jesus has 
come into the world, Paul says. And he has made us sons of him through faith. Sons of God through faith in Jesus. All of us who are baptized in Christ have been clothed with Christ. That what Jesus has done is he has begun to ameliorate the sort of primordial cries of every person. And so it changes the possibility of what family looks like. Dan Allender says that every child comes into the world asking two questions. You might disagree with this, but I think it's a pretty insightful comment. Every child comes into the world asking two questions. These questions are these. One, am I loved? Is there somebody who cares about me deeply that won't reject me, that won't turn away from me, that will be there no matter what? I can screw up royally and they'll still want me. Am I loved? And the second one is, can I do what I want? Can I do what I want? Am I loved and can I do what I want? And of course, the aim of good parenting is a different answer for each question. Yes, you are loved. No, you cannot do what you want. Because you're loved. If you only do what you want... If you're the center of your world and you think of no one else, then you'll actually destroy yourself. You'll actually be curved in on yourself and find yourself incapable of joy. Incapable of the life that was created for you and that you're summoned to. Well, when you look at what Jesus has done, you start to realize, wait a second. All the questions, see, because you don't grow out of this as a child. You wonder, am I loved? Can I do what I want? As a grown-up, you really do wonder the same exact thing. The wondering presents itself in different ways, but every time you get anxious, every time you self-promote, every time you spin the truth to make yourself look a little better than you are and make the other person look a little worse than you, every time you watch the financial news and you become a wreck, You're wondering, am I loved? Am I a cosmic orphan or is there someone in the universe that I can count on to be there for me? That no matter what I do, and I can do some pretty bad stuff, I won't be cut off. In Steinbeck's colossal and magisterial work, uh, East of Eden, he says this in talking about the Cain and Abel story. These guys are conversing. And he says, the greatest terror a child can have, and I would say a grown-up too, is that he is not loved and rejection is the hell that he fears. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt rejection, and with rejection comes anger. And with anger, some kind of crime in revenge for the rejection. And with the crime, guilt And there is the story of mankind. I think that if rejection could be amputated, the human would not be what he is. I think that there would be fewer crazy people. I'm sure there would not be as many jails. It's all there. The start, the beginning. One child refused the love that he craves, kicks the cat, hides his secret guilt, and another steals so that money will make him loved. And a third conquers the world and always the guilt and revenge and more guilt. The human is the only guilty animal. The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved and rejection is the hell that he fears.
And if the Apostle Paul could say, look, someone has seen clear through you. They've known the worst things there are to know about you, and yet have offered themselves as a sacrifice so that you could be accepted by God, so that rejection could be amputated. He says, you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus. It's simple. It's not anything you do. It's not anything that you can undo. It's something that you accept. That's why Paul Tillich said that faith is the courage to accept acceptance. That you can get the question answered. Am I loved by saying, God says he did. That doesn't seem possible. I'm going to accept it. And I can't undo it. A group of people who start to believe that become a generous people, become an honest people, become a people that aren't so worried about themselves because, see, it's the mentality of an orphan to think that everything in the world depends on you. So you're always having to protect yourself. You're always having to worry about yourself. But if you start to believe that you are a child of God, and that's not like a wink, wink, haha. This is something the poets talk about. But it's an existential reality that in this universe, I'm not alone. I've got someone watching out for me, taking care of me. It really does change you. In Dostoevsky's work, the brothers Karamazov, there's a father who's a buffoon, a doofus, like me. And he says this, or this is said of him, he liked. To have someone strong in the room who knew all but would not turn their face away. He loved to have the presence of someone strong in the room who knew all but would not turn their face away. And that's what your Savior has done by engrafting you into his family. I know all. I set up this relationship. I pre-loved you. You can't Mess it up. So trust me. Are you loved? Yes. You're loved. But can you do what you want? Well, Paul also says if you are a son, then you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you can't do whatever you want. You've been purchased. It sounds an odious thing to us to think, oh gosh, I have to do what someone else wants. That sounds like a lot of working out and military training. Well, if you start to realize, though, that this God who wanted to show you someone strong who knew all but would not turn their face away, that the way he did it was he was born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. I read recently a story about a guy who stole my idea. This happens all the time. This guy was, a, was an athlete, and he was a spelt, buff, chiseled dude, like I used to be. And he said, as a trainer, what he wanted to do, because he had so many people who had struggled so much with weight gain, is he, like me, decided to empathize with them that he would gain an enormous amount of weight. I was like, dude, I've been doing this for years, just to empathize with the people. 
But he gained all this weight to see what is it like when you're lethargic and you feel addicted to sugar and it's hard to put on your socks. He wanted to know. He wanted to put himself under it so that he could live and help the people that he was trying to help. And the scriptures tell us in a way that's what Jesus did, that God left the precincts of heaven and he came down to live in this ditch in a lot of ways. This place where family life is in so many ways a colossal disappointment. His life was a life of sorrows acquainted with many griefs. He met up with all the temptations that you did, only he didn't cave to them. And we're told that he fulfilled the laws that he, the law of God. He came to be like us. He, he got fat, flabby, like the people he's trying to help so he could help them best. This is the one who's saying you don't exist for yourself. There's no length that I won't go to to make you mine. You can trust me so you can trust what I say. So anybody who belongs to him, anybody who's part of his family wants to say, you know what? For me, autonomy is no more. See, every child from the earliest age, they want autonomy, don't they? You say, Jimmy, little Jimmy, don't touch that outlet. And he goes, which outlet? This one? And he gets as close as he can. He's testing you. He wants to know, can I do what I want? And if you love him, you won't let them just do whatever they want. They need to know that there's a joy to being under the rule of someone who cares deeply for them. And that's what Jesus has demonstrated for us. Your family of origin is a very formative thing, but it's not the only thing in your life. And if you start to believe these things, and I close with this, you get the, well, you get the happiness of knowing how to deal with the the big questions that come to you in the middle of the night when the economy's bad, when your business is tanking, when your kids are a wreck and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to manage your own inner life, and you're saying to God, you mustn't love me. Maybe you've given life with God a whirl. And you say, he couldn't love me. If he loved me, he would have answered my prayers already. If he loved me, he would have set me free from this thing that I keep struggling with over and over and over again. If he loved me, my husband would treat me better. If he loved me, we wouldn't have to live in this crummy house. If he loved me, I'd know what to do. But if you start to realize that what he's done to make you part of his family, your response, your self-dialogue can become different. Because have you as a parent, maybe you've done this or at least received it, have you as a parent ever had your child accuse you of non-love? Accuse you of not loving them? I heard Tim Keller talk about this once and I thought it was a very intriguing illustration. He says, you know, think about this. You've had kids, a teenager maybe, you... They were dying. They were dying to go see a movie that all their friends were going to get to see and you wouldn't let them see it. You know why? Because you didn't love them. And they accused you of it. They said, Mom, you don't love me. Why won't you let me have a cell phone? If you would let me have a cell phone, I would know you loved me. You must not love me. You won't let me go to the dance. You're grounding me. There's no way you could love me. And whenever your child accuses you of that, don't you 
look at them and go, oh, little Jimmy, you little sweetheart. Come here, let me scoop you up. No, you don't do that. Why? What do you do instead? When they say, you don't love me, you say, you twit. What are you, an idiot? It doesn't make you sad. It makes you angry. And why does it make you angry? Because you're thinking, and you probably say, do you have any idea how much space you take up in my heart? Do you have any idea how much your father and I worry about you? Do you have any idea what we've given up to have you people? Do you know how much y'all cost? Do you know how much energy you take? You're all we think about. And you have the audacity to say that we don't love you? All we do is sacrifice for you. And Jesus could say the same thing to us. Here's where you find out if God loves you. You look at Him giving up His Son. Entrusting Him to a bunch of twits who would destroy Him so that we could be righted with Him. And so when you want to know, does He love me? Can He be trusted? Can I, should I listen to Him or just do what I want? You look back at His sacrifice and Him saying, do you know how much space you occupy in my heart? Do you know that your names are engraved on the palms of my hands? Do you know that if something's happening to you, then it must have filtered through my scarred hands. You are not an orphan. You've been adopted into my familial care. Caleb and Krista, who just adopted little Mia from China, when they were leaving, they said, would you pray for little Mia? She's been in this orphanage. Would you pray for her as she endures this upheaval? But he said something like this, but at least the upheaval is so that she can be engrafted into family love. Well done, Caleb. That was a beautiful thing to say. And that's the story of us all, should we accept it. That the God who made the heavens, the God who knows all the things you want to keep secret about yourself, has said, I want you. If you want me, it's because I wanted you first. I've sent my spirit into you to make you long for me to cry out, Abba, Father. It might feel like an upheaval, but it's so that you can be engrafted into my family love. So you will not be a cosmic orphan. I hope we can believe that and live like a family of people who really are children of this God who's strong and knows all but will never turn away. Amen.